Welcome to Tidbits of Research. My name's Sparanda Sandu. My guest today is Eva Vallekis, a Provost Diversity Fellow who recently defended her PhD thesis in the Physics Department at Cornell University. She works in Professor Michael Nemack's Experimental Cosmology and Astrophysics Lab. She's co-director of Particle Bytes, the High Energy Physics Reader's Digest blog, co-lead of the Simons Observatory Education and Public Engagement Working Group, has done lots of cool outreach, including a book for children on neutrinos, but more on that in a bit. Are we ready? Yeah. Okay, let's go. Eve Vavayakis, welcome to Tidbits of Research. I want to start by just kind of a broad stroke on your research. You work at the intersection of experimental cosmology and astrophysics. What kinds of questions are we interested in answering here? Yeah, so when we're looking at the light from the cosmic microwave background, this is the oldest light that we can possibly observe because we're looking back in time, just like when you look at a star, that light has taken some time to get to us today. Um, You keep looking back farther and farther away. You eventually get to this ancient radiation that was released right when the universe was this hot, dense plasma that was slowly cooling down to the point where photons or light particles could start to travel and reach us in a very long time, 13 plus billion years. Um, So my research works on the experimental side of that, meaning we make telescopes and cameras and we observe this light. So essentially taking pictures in microwave wavelengths. And then the questions that I've been asking in my PhD research include things like, what has the matter in our universe, like this gravitationally bound stuff that we recognize as space stuff. So in my case, I'm looking at galaxy groups and clusters. Um, What has this done to that ancient light? So that's the science question, um, is looking at what we can learn about the matter that lies in between us and this ancient light and how we can observe that ancient light in the first place. I like that you were calling it space stuff. Because I call it space stuff, so maybe it's a little comforting that in your explaining it to other people, space stuff is the way to go. I think that's the most recognizable thing, right? So when I tell people I do anything involving space, cosmology is not what you necessarily think of when you think of space. You think of planets and stars and asteroids, and um, I'm always asked about aliens, and cosmology doesn't have anything to do with that. We're looking at the physics of the universe as a single system. So if you were to do physics in high school, Maybe you didn't like it very much because you're dealing with these systems of blocks with springs on ramps. Um, essentially, we're, we're using the entire universe as one system and, and trying to learn about its evolution over time. But then you can do more things when you're looking at, at this light in particular that have to do with the more recognizable, what I'm calling space stuff. And so that, that's kind of uh, what's tangential to what people think of when they think of space, I think. Is that the kind of most popular thing that people misunderstand about your field? That's a very common one. Yeah. What I, are others? The, honestly, the aliens thing is is just, it just sticks in my head <laughs> because of these experiences I've had when going to public science events. We get individuals coming who are completely convinced that we're part of the government cover-up mm. uh, for, for alien technology and and surveillance or whatever they think. Um, so I've been I've been asked how I sleep at night covering up alien theories. Wow. Um, It would be cool if I knew more about that. That would be something (laughs) I'd love to learn more about in my life. But it's definitely not what we think about as cosmologists. There's a lot of really uh, excellent exoplanet research happening and people looking at that actual issue. 
and a lot of really interesting science coming out there, but unfortunately does not have anything to do with cosmology. Right. <laughs> How did you become interested in this? So I started college being very interested in physics as applied to the more uh, commonly known space stuff. So I, I wanted to do something with astronomy in some, some case. Um, I even started out thinking I would be an astronomy major before realizing that physics and astronomy have a great deal of overlap. And so I would be taking the same courses essentially either way. When I first started, I guess another common misconception is that astronomy is astrology. So I remember keenly this time <laughs> where I was, I was meeting people in my dorm for the first time freshman year. And somebody asked me what my major was. And I said, I think I'm going to do astronomy. And they're like, oh, that's so awesome. So like you learn how to write horoscopes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was fun because I, it made me try to think of what an entire college major on astrology would right. be like. <laughs> Maybe you could have a like course a crystals work. course and a charting course. I don't know what that would be. But in any case, another common misconception is astronomy, astrology. Mm -hmm. But in any case, I started out college with an interest in, in physics as applied to space. And I really was fascinated by final frontiers in general. So I think if I didn't go down this path, I would be interested in something like neuroscience, where you know, the brain is a big mystery, or maybe exploring ocean depths, or I, I really like large unknowns. And then as I kept going, I had the fortune of working in an astronomy lab with Gordon Stacy, who I still work with now. But when I started out, I started learning more about how you can study either things like galaxy evolution and star formation and things like that. Or you can add in this cosmology aspect, which is the whole universe at one time. And being a, an overzealous young person, I think I looked at that and I was like, all of space at once, sign me up. <laughs> and so uh, the interest in cosmology really came from a large unknown being, what is the history and evolution of our universe? And that was a big enough question to feel like I'd be satisfied studying that for a very long time. And so far, I've been right. That's really cool. All of space at once. I yeah. I really like that. What has been one of the maybe coolest or more surprising things that you've learned about galaxy evolution in the past, kind of like from the beginning, I guess? That's a great question. So the question that I have been looking into is what is the baryon content? Meaning baryonic matter is everything that you and I interact with every day. So I'm looking at you, I'm sitting on a chair, all of that stuff is baryonic matter. And that only makes up a small percentage of our universe. The majority of it is the stuff that we don't know about called dark matter. And we call it dark because it doesn't interact electromagnetically. So we can't look at it with light like we look at many other things in our universe. And the stuff called dark energy, which is dominating the universe's expansion. So we're expanding faster and faster and we don't know why. And we don't know what the majority of the space stuff really is <laughs> in our universe. So I'm just scratching the surface on that with a method of estimating how much baryonic matter are in these dense groups of galaxies and how does that compare to what we originally believe. And so I think the question of what is the majority of our universe, that's an open question that we don't know the answer to yet. And I might not be answering that directly. Like there are a lot of really interesting dark matter experiments and um, probes that, that are currently ongoing. But what's exciting is I'm trying this, this method of looking at how galaxies and groups and clusters are moving around in what we call the large scale structure of our universe. And if you look at it, it's like this webby 
pattern that almost reminds me of what like cells and tissue does it's mm. it's interesting it's like this branching just dominated by the physics of our universe type effect that you see in both biological systems and also the largest scales in our entire universe and so you have these over densities and under densities as matter clusters due to gravity and we can probe that by looking at the light that's particular to, to our instruments that we measure this ancient light and how it's sensitive to the motions of these clusters as they move around and so I'm not going to be able to answer what is our universe made of <laughs> in my PhD, um, but I have been able to ask some of these questions by using that particular tool. And it's been really exciting to, to learn how to do that. That's so cool. <laughs> so backtracking kind of a, a little bit, did you come to Cornell kind of knowing the kinds of questions you wanted to ask in this field? Is that something that you need to do as a PhD student in physics and astrophysics? This was one of my biggest concerns as a young person saying, hey, I'm interested in physics, I'm interested in space science, but I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have no idea. I don't know what the questions are and I don't know what the unknown unknowns are and I don't know how one becomes a researcher. Um, so I was really encouraged when I started doing research as an undergrad to realize that it's not like you walk in the door and then somebody says, okay, design an entire experiment and then do it. <laughs> Um, so you do definitely uh, gain a lot of experience by working on projects that are already happening. And I love being a mentor in that way as well, because now I, I work with students who are coming in and asking the same question. Like, I'm interested in physics, but I don't know what the questions are. And by showing them what we're currently working on, which are these really massive collaborative experiments that take hundreds of talented people working on all different aspects, and saying, hey, this is how you can plug in and work, chip away on this little piece of the pie. And then over time, you learn what is happening in terms of the technology, what is happening in terms of the open questions that we can reasonably address in, in a given time scale. And as you gain more experience, then you can come up with your own questions. But this field of cosmology right now is highly collaborative, and there is no way um, I would be able to design and build the cameras that I'm working on single-handedly. And that's something I love about this field is that you're not needing to work alone in a lab with closed doors late at night, not talking to anybody else and just coming up with something on your own. You are interfacing with hundreds of other people that are interested in what you're interested in and have so much to offer you in terms of what they know and, and you have so much to learn. So when I started in Mike Nemax lab here at Cornell, I was thrilled by the wide variety of projects that I could click into and start learning about. And so in the course of my PhD, I've learned about detectors, so the things that make up the pixels of our cameras, and the readout technologies, so the things that make us able to take that data from the pixels and, and put it into our computers. And I've learned about the cryogenic systems, so basically these big refrigerators that cool down the pixels of the camera, which is that's necessary to measure the light that we're looking at. And then I've learned about the data analysis. So you finally get this data. We have some wizards in our collaboration that take it from, from the raw product, from you know, reading out the data to the finished maps that I've then been, been able to work with. And then learning how to work with those maps and get science information out of them across many different projects, which is even more exciting to me is, is I'm working on ones that are like the Atacama Cosmology Telescope is currently taking data 
it's a well-established project, has a lot of information to work with. And then I'm working on future projects like the Simons Observatory and the CCAT Prime project, and then looking even farther into this next generation CMB, um, which stands for Cosmic Microwave Background Experiment, where the entire field is coming together to work on like the ultimate telescope uh, system so we can make the ultimate high precision measurements of this light. It's extremely exciting to be a part of this. And uh, I'm encouraged that I don't need to come up with the questions on my own. I can come up with them in the context of this like larger human effort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My goodness, I have so many subsequent questions. I don't even know where to start. Um, <laughs> so one thing I'll start with is you were talking about cryogenics and that you need to cool stuff. Why do you need to cool the stuff? Yeah, so when we're looking at measuring the cosmic microwave background, we're looking at measuring a black body spectrum at 2.7 Kelvin. But that light wasn't always at that temperature. Early in the universe's history, when it was very hot and dense, those photons were emitted at something more like 3000 Kelvin. It was only after the universe expanded and cooled over the next 13 plus billion years that the photons redshifted to the point where they're at that 2.7 Kelvin temperature today. And what we're most interested in studying are little tiny fluctuations, so about one part in 100,000 around that temperature, because those little fluctuations are what encode the physics of our universe and the physics of astrophysical objects that lie in between us and the cosmic microwave background. And that's because early, when those photons were just being um, emitted, when the universe was cooling enough so that electrons formed hydrogen and helium, and the universe became transparent to the photons for the first time, their interactions with the physics of our universe at that time are encoded in the small fluctuations in that light. And then they travel, they're able to free stream through the universe and travel to us today, over 13 billion years, and they interact with things in between us and the CMB. So they traveled for a very long time, they interacted with gravitational potentials, they interacted with electrons in gas, like in galaxy clusters, and they encoded a bunch of rich information about our universe when they did that. So based on little fluctuations from their very early universe and little fluctuations from the, uh, the paths that they take, take on their way to us here today, we can start to understand the physics of our entire universe, and that is cosmology. So that's what we want to be studying. To make precise measurements of these tiny little fluctuations, we need very sensitive instrumentation. So we put telescopes out to capture the light from the sky. The light bounces around in the telescope and is focused into cryogenic receivers. Those cryogenic receivers house lenses and filters that filter the light and focus it onto detector arrays. We want to cool down the lenses and the filters because we don't want them to be um, thermally washing out our signals, introducing noise, degrading our optics. We want them to be performing as well as they can, and they do that at cryogenic temperatures. We also want a very sensitive detector array. Our detectors function because of the principle of superconductivity. So they have these superconducting metals that have some normal resistance until you cool them down below a certain temperature. This is called the critical temperature. As you cool them down, they reach that critical temperature, then rapidly lose their resistance and it goes to zero. And on that very steep transition is where we function those detectors. And that's because if you have a steep transition in resistance versus temperature, then a small change in temperature creates a relatively large change in resistance. 
and we can read that out as the signals from our detectors. So to measure very small fluctuations in the light, we need cold optics, and then we need these sensitive detectors that take that tiny fluctuation in temperature from the power that's been deposited on them from the sky, and they change that into an electrical current that we can measure. So that's why we have these things that are we call cryogenic receivers. They're basically big refrigerators that cool down to near absolute zero. Zooming in a little bit more, um, I would love to know more about the Atacama Cosmology Telescope. Yeah. What kinds of information has it been giving us? That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of webinars and publications and all sorts of exciting things that are coming out from the data sets that, that we've been generating with that project. So what this is, is it's a six meter telescope down in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And it studies the cosmic microwave background at a, a variety of different wavelengths and produces these maps and data project data products that we can work with. And we've done things like make catalogs of galaxy clusters. We've learned about the, the parameters that describe our universe, um, how fast it's expanding. There's this interesting prob problem with the, the Hubble constant right now that we're seeing this tension from different types of measurements to measure the, the expansion rate of our universe. We've informed that um, with our measurements. We've looked at the, the distribution of matter. Um, we can ask questions then about dark matter and dark energy. I have been making measurements of this thing called the Sinaev-Zeldovich effect involving galaxy groups and clusters, and that's what I was talking about. We can start to ask questions again about dark energy and galaxy evolution and um, the sum of the neutrino masses, which is this fundamental particle that we don't know a lot about still. There's, there's a lot to learn, so we can learn about fundamental particle physics. We have even done stuff like um, Sigurd Ness, uh, a scientist with us, just put out a paper on looking for planet nine, which is this mysterious potential planet um, on the outskirts of our solar system. There's a lot of exciting questions we can ask. This just like scratches the surface. So I guess if you're interested in our universe, its evolution, what our universe is made of, particle physics, even planets, um, there's transient work that's going on, meaning like how different sources change over time based on our data. There's a lot of questions that we can ask. Have you ever been there? I haven't yet. I may go possibly down for the camera that I'm currently working on. When you go, it's at very high elevation. So we're at about 17,000 feet. So in general, people wear oxygen. It's difficult to concentrate, difficult to breathe. So it's a very intense, um, but strikingly beautiful work environment. So I've seen the photos that, that people have, have sent back when they go and uh, it's just beautiful. I have many questions because I, I just don't know how any of this works. Of course. <laughs> it, so the telescope is like on 24 seven and the data uploads somewhere and then everybody has access to it. How do you get access? How, who watches it? How does that, all of that work? Yeah, yeah definitely. So one thing that surprised me was that we can observe during the day and during the night because we're looking at these particular wavelengths of light that, that we can still observe during the day. There's different systematics during the day versus the night, but we can observe around the clock. It's weather dependent. So sometimes there's a lot of snow or the atmosphere is not good to see through essentially for our measurements. Um, but part of the reason, well, the reason we're there is that 
it's one of the best places on Earth. It's like the closest to space you can get. There's there's very little um, water vapor and and stuff that is between our telescope and space. But sometimes there's still weather that gets in our way. To make the observations, I worked as as one of these people who are basically sitting babysitting the telescope for a 24-hour shift. So students, postdocs, faculty members take shifts and you man the robot that controls the telescope. So there's an automatically generated schedule. Sometimes you add certain things to it depending on what we want to do in a given day. But essentially it's running some code that tells the telescope where to look and for how long. And then you're in charge of if it crashes, even in the middle of the night, you have to get up and, and fix it. And that involves a lot of rebooting in general. So something I've learned from my PhD is turn it off and on again is actually kind of the default attempt to fix things. From afar, even. From afar, even if you're working on a massive telescope in Chile, turn it off and on again is the default, yeah. So once we do this remote observing, there's a lot of data that's generated and it's it's in this raw form, call it like a time stream where you have the data over time that you've taken. And this is where the wizardry starts. So it's not like we all look at that data and create the maps. For our collaboration, there are people who take that data and know how to clean it and work with it to turn it into these map products. And so after they do their magic, then we can access these finished data products and we release them to the public. So we've recently released a whole bunch of maps that anybody can download and use and then do their own science with them. And before we generate public data, we work with it ourselves and see what we can see in it for whatever project we're pursuing. And so that's kind of the mapping of uh, you control the robot on your computer, the data is then worked with and cleaned by experts, and then we in the larger collaboration, and then the whole world can work with those final maps once they've been made. And you can open them up and they look like maps. I mean, they look like a picture of um, sky. It's usually in, in these high contrast colors and it looks kind of ripply. And yeah, it's, it's really neat that you can look at this ancient imprint and you can look at the footprint of a galaxy cluster if you look in the right spot and you can see it like just on your screen. It sounds like these kinds of projects take a very long time. Yes. <laughs> Especially you were saying a little bit before that there are kind of these huge collaborative projects and I want to piggyback on that later too with the Simons Observatory, but how does that work? <laughs> so the Simons Observatory was a, a really great case study for me as a person who was coming into this not knowing how this worked. And I got to be in the room when the first cryogenic receivers or like the cameras that we were going to be using were discussed. And I got to be in front of the chalkboard while we were sketching out the first ever sketches of what would then become this massive camera called the Large Aperture Telescope Receiver. And so what happens is people come together in a group with a variety of experiences that they've worked on previous experiments. And you're asking, what questions are we trying to answer with this project, which is, in the case of the Simons Observatory, funded generously, privately, by Jim Simons and the Simons Foundation. And it could be also a, a government-funded agency, like a grant. But basically, you need money from someplace to do this thing. The thing is thought of by people who have experience in the field, how to, 
how to push forward on the questions that we're trying to ask with better measurements and a better instrument. And then you start thinking about how you can best address those questions. And then comes all of the hard work once you know, okay, this is what we're going to build. Then comes a series of a lot of Zoom meetings <laughs> for many years where decisions are made after a lot of back and forthing between various institutions. There's a lot of inside stuff that happens insofar as you know, some institutions want to pursue this, these specific technologies that they've been working on and others have their own interests in mind and we all have to get together on the same page and work together to decide who's doing what and how we're going to contribute. And then we break up into groups, we call them working groups, and we tackle different parts of this. So there are people working on, for the Simons Observatory, the small aperture telescopes, which are smaller and looking at different signatures in the sky than the large one is that I mentioned previously. Then there's people working on the larger one. And then in those subgroups, there's people working on subsystems and sub-subsystems and onwards and, and, and such. So we all plug in in our, in our various ways. Some people have multiple roles, so you might be looking at how the data is going to be acquired and also how the telescope will be controlled, or you're looking at, I'm looking at, for example, magnetic shielding for these camera components and also looking at some of the detector properties. And this takes many years to develop each of these little puzzle pieces. And then we slowly plug them in together and it all leads up to first light, which is when the telescope's actually built and collecting light and we have our instrument on there and it's taking data and we're not there yet, but it will be soon. So this is a, a multi-year process and it kind of goes from conception to data taking. And then the science starts and the science can go on far even past the lifetime of an instrument or the lifetime of a telescope. So with the Atacama Cosmology Telescope, we may stop observing soon because the lifetime of the experiment is done, but we'll still have a lot of work to be done with the data products after that point. So it's this great arc of conception to completion to data taking to data analysis, and these projects overlap each other in time. So you're saying that the lifetime of the telescope, no, the lifetime of the experiment is running out. What does that mean? So I don't know if I can publicly comment on this. I don't know the whole story, but essentially projects need to be funded. So you need money to keep it going and projects don't go forever. So the facilities aren't expected to last forever. Usually when something is funded, it'll have a lifetime in mind. It might be extended depending on different factors, but it does have a finite lifetime where you're expected to then move on and do something new. So when you're proposing something like the Simons Observatory, which, how many years has it been since the project started? Do you know? When was the official creation date of it? Was it 2015? I might need to check the official date. But but thereabouts, right? It's been a few years. <laughs> it's, been, it's been several years. Right. And then you kind of probably have to ask for permission, I'm imagining, for it to be built. This is also going to be built in Chile. Mm-hmm. It's going to be built right near the Atacama Cosmology Telescope, yeah. Because it's such high prime, right? We, we I know now. Yeah. <laughs> it's great for the measurements. Um, I'm just wondering how does that impact the local community? You're building all these things and then maybe temporary, maybe for a while, people are going to be visiting to do all this stuff. Definitely, yeah. So there's a lot of this behind-the-scenes work that higher-ups work on to 
negotiate these things that I'm not privy to, like building permits and road permits and facilities structures and customs stuff and all these technicalities. Um, but what I do know more about is, is once that's been established, that it's a mutually beneficial relationship um, for Chile and for, for us, then we do work with universities and people in the workforce in Chile who work with us on the projects. And we also are working on through the Simons Observatory, we have this, this group that's working on education and outreach and diversity and inclusion efforts. And one of those is a public engagement effort in Chile. So we're looking to interface with local students, with local universities, museums, people, members of the public who may or may not know about why we're doing the work we're doing and why it's interesting. And pulling in those people and engaging them and, and interfacing with the community is something that we're constantly trying to work on. And mutually have this this relationship where we're there for the great location doing all this exciting science but we definitely want to have a positive impact on the community too and develop their astronomy interests and programs and so hopefully in the future a core part of what we're doing down in Chile with the Simons Observatory will be an involvement in that local community. So I was asking earlier, like, what kinds of questions um, or what kinds of information the ACT gives us. What kinds of questions are you looking into for the Simons Observatory? Yeah, so I'm going to be hopefully in the future extending my thesis research into this, the signal, the Sinai-Zodolvich effect. So the Simons Observatory will be giving us higher signal-to-noise measurements of the light that we're studying. And in time, both data from, from SO and also from the CCAT Prime project will be really opening up this window with the data that we can start to put better constraints on the things that we're trying to measure. So essentially continuing what I'm doing with ACT, but with basically better and better data and larger and larger data sets from these new things. But there's a lot of science that the small aperture telescopes for the Simons Observatory We'll, we'll be able to um, enable past what we can do with ACT because they're specialized for certain measurements. And so I can't really get into all of the, the massive differences between these observatories, but essentially as a community, we're trying to enable better and better images of this microwave sky and in other frequencies with, with CCAT Prime that will enable different types of science goals to be, to be addressed. And you can think of it as kind of this this race to make the best measurements we can possibly make with new and improved technologies over time. And I'll be able to continue and improve upon the research that I've been doing now with those future data sets. So it's really exciting because we're limited in some ways in what we can say with these tools right now, but we can really improve that in the future. So for the, the equipment, I've been looking at things like the magnetic sensitivity of the detectors and readout components and how we might be able to best shield them from fields that might influence our measurements. And so that's kind of now we talked about how you can plug into a larger experiment. That's one of these things where you like zoom way in now. And we're not talking about the finished data, but we're looking at what can I do to make the measurements better so that I can benefit from them for the science later. And so what I've been personally doing is looking at, at that is a uh, I've been testing materials also to motivate 
the design of the detectors and then looking at the sensitivity of those and how we can best shield them inside of the cameras. And hopefully these little projects that I've been working on to, to help the, the greater mission will enable the better data sets that I can do the science with in, in several years. It sounds like... Feels like farming. <laughs> How is it like farming? <laughs> I feel like you're, you're prepping, you're prepping, right, for, for a future bounty. And you learn from your previous, I, I don't know anything about farming, just disclaimer, I'm, I'm, you know, probably a farmer is going to listen to this and be like, this person knows absolutely nothing, she should stop talking about this. But in my world, I, I, I think of farming as something that you learn from previous years, you sow your best seeds, and then you hope to profit from that down the line. So we're just farming great measurements of the microwave sky. <laughs> is the junk that's gathering kind of around the earth and like orbiting us right now, is that affecting this at all? So there hasn't been a lot of talking about the space junk, but there has been a lot of discussion on these new satellite systems, these internet satellites that are going around and you can see them in the night sky because they're these bright objects. Um, there's a lot of discussion on how that's going to impact not just our field, but the rest of astronomy and ground-based observations. And there's a really lively and important ongoing discussion on how we're going to, as a society, weigh the importance of internet for everybody versus access to the night sky, which is pretty fundamental to who we've always been as a species. We've always looked up at the night sky and so much of modern physics, modern technology, everything that we use from our phones to our navigation systems and everything has come from astronomy, looking up at the night sky, asking questions, answering them based on the night sky. And it's hard to imagine that we are changing that directly um, to a degree that we might be able to limit the amount of information we can get in some places from the night sky now because of what we've done to the, to the sky. So there's a lot of questions happening about that um, and ongoing dialogue. And if anybody's interested, it's, it's definitely a place where you can learn more about it and decide for yourself what you think our, our priorities should be as a society and how we can go about mitigating that. And in a lot of ways, the sky is kind of like the, the wild west where the laws aren't quite in place um, yet. And it's a, an evolving, dialogue between astronomers and people who are working on satellites and people who want internet and other things. Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. And I'm hoping that there can be a balance struck. What is the kind of relationship then between things like the Hubble telescope? So like telescopes that are in orbit, and maybe it's something like, well, maybe they can get all the information we need. The problems with space based telescopes are that you need to put them in space, which is <laughs> very expensive. A very jarring experience. Too. Yeah, yeah. I'm personally glad I don't work. I have mixed feelings about it. First of all, it's freaking awesome to launch things into space, right? Um, that would be super cool. However, you work on this thing and then it's, it's in space, man. You can't access it anymore. If you made some mistake, you can't go up there and fix it. It's in space. So that would give me a lot of anxiety. The problem is you can't launch arbitrarily large items into space, unless you have an arbitrarily large checkbook and an arbitrarily large energy source, limitations rapidly close in on what you can do. 
And a lot of what we're looking at requires small scales on the sky, which require large telescope mirrors. Um, it's, it's just the way that light scales is if you have a very large dish, you can look at small things. And if you have a smaller one, you look at larger things. And so when we're looking at, for example, the data sets that I was working on for the Sinaios-Ladovich effect measurements that I've been making with ACT, um, we use data from Planck, which is a satellite, in combination with ACT because the ground-based experiment and the space-based experiment complement each other in terms of what kind of measurements you can make. So there's different advantages to being out in space. You don't have the atmosphere. You're looking at the whole sky. On the ground, you obviously can't look through the Earth. <laughs> so your, your window on the sky is smaller than if you're in space, but you're able to make a larger telescope so you can make these smaller angular resolution measurements. So all this to say, we will not be able to do all of the science that we want to do in space because of some really practical limitations. Um, and so I think it's important to keep the windows that we need open on Earth open in addition to exploring what we can do in space. You're involved in a number of outreach activities. Do you remember the first one you got involved with? What was the first one? I wonder if it was, I mean, going all the way back to high school, I was involved in um, my local library. I worked in my local library for six years and I was involved with summer programs for kids doing different science experiments that just piqued their interest. And so this has really been a continuum, I think, from when I was little, really being just fascinated by the science demos that I was being shown in school and then in like little science camps and things like that to as I got older, I immediately tried to give that back. Um, so I guess another one was there's a, a space camp called the Challenger Center where I grew up. And I went there in like a simulated space flight with different um, experiments and things like that when I was younger. I don't remember what grade, but young. And as soon as I could be a, um, a worker there, I, I got a summer job as, as one of the counselors in the, the space camp. And it was just, it's such a good feeling to give back to students what you yourself benefited from. And so I just tried to continue that through. So I think, you know, in college, I became an undergraduate teaching assistant, which wasn't necessarily outreach, but still working with people who are interested in physics. And I started volunteering through like the Northern Lights Learning Cooperative for homeschooled students. And there's just, there's so many, I can go on about the programs at Cornell, but Cornell is an excellent resource for different outreach and engagement initiatives. So I've really just continued it, I guess, from as soon as I could when I was younger to now. And something I'm really excited about is this ongoing project that I am working with a Cortland High School physics instructor on, which I call Cortland High School Cosmology Day, where I'm, I'm bringing in the, the class um, from Cortland High School for uh, physics students and giving them a lab tour and then also talks from fellow PhD students who are explaining how the heck do you get into physics or astronomy if you're interested in it, right? Because it's not necessarily clear how you do that. So opening up that the window on the, the possible paths for students is something that I really like to do. Is there some project out there that you'd like to get to in the future? So I can talk a little bit about the books I've been writing for children, which I'm really excited about. So I am starting on the series of children's books explaining 
the fundamental physics and astronomy concepts of our universe in a way that I hope will be entertaining as well as informative and hopefully like lower that intimidation barrier a bit. And I'm really excited to be putting out the first one next year with Candlewick Press and MIT Press on their new imprint, MIT Kids, where they're taking STEAM books, um, so STEM plus arts subjects, and making a whole line of those for kids. So the first ones are coming out this fall, and then I'll be publishing I'm a Neutrino. Oh, that's cute. In the spring. And it's this book filled with like these lovable little neutrino characters teaching the basics of neutrino physics, which is something I actually wrote down that poem that became the book just when I was learning about how I could learn about neutrinos through cosmology. And I, I just wrote down this kind of Dr. Seussian type rhyme um, and that became an actual book. So I'd love to continue that. And uh, something about neutrino story time for kids is just so delightful to me that I, I'm really excited to hopefully have that in a library again someday. It sounds adorable and also really hard. Yes. So how have you found the process of like trying to write this for children? Yeah, so I've been involved in a lot of science writing and communication workshops and classes that have helped a lot during my time at Cornell. Um, like ComSciCon was great. There's another class Bruce Lewinstein at Cornell has the science communication workshop. It's like this weekend workshop that I'd recommend for anybody who's interested in science communication. So a lot of, a lot of thinking about it happened before I started writing. And then I think the core things to keep in mind are that you need to really boil it down to its essence. You cannot get lost in the weeds with details. <laughs> you really need to get to what is the core message that I'm trying to convey what is the simplest language that I can use to do that? And what is the, there's the next KCD thing, the Upgoer 5, where you can essentially write any text through this word generator online that puts it into the quote, 10 hundred most common words. And it will tell you when a word is not common enough to convey it in the most simple terms. So um, using that to describe my own research was a really fun exercise. And it, it comes out really cute. Like a telescope turns into like a look box. I love it. <laughs> because you can't use telescopes. So that was helpful as an exercise. But basically trying to get at the core message with the simplest words possible and still not being misleading. Right. So like I'm working on one about black holes. You can't say they suck in things because that's that's not accurate. It's, it's a gravitational force. They're not like, like actually sucking in everything. <laughs> so common words that aren't misleading. And it's a, it's a balance because you need to constantly be asking, does this paint a wrong picture? Um, you don't want to mislead people. I think I would actually want to like stop there. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I have learned so much. <laughs> and I am looking forward to seeing your book series for kids in doors. Thank you. Yeah, coming soon. Yeah, <laughs> stay tuned. I also, I want to shout out that the, the first book is illustrated by my mother, who is a professional artist. And so it's been really wonderful to work on this book for kids that is coming from 
the person who inspired me to pursue my own dreams. And she's always been so supportive of everything I've done. And so being able to work on this as a joint project really feels like a kind of a victory lap in a lot of ways. And her art is absolutely beautiful. So it's really nice to see the project come together. That's so lovely. Yeah, she encouraged me to turn it into an actual book when she saw the poem. I sent her the poem and she was like, I'll illustrate this. It'll be a real book. And so I said, okay. So a lot of it was due to her uh, belief in, in the project. I absolutely loved this chat. I love most anything related to stars, galaxies, the universe. It's all just so mind-blowing. And the scale of it all really helps me put things in perspective. I loved learning more about dark energy, the cosmic microwave background, cryogenics design. I hope your curiosity, what I feel is the fuel of research, was also sparked. Our music is Float and Fly by Golgartelli. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again soon.